1: Once more, the podcast begins. The Emperor Paul deep on his ascension to the Lion Throne.
0: Welcome to Gom Jabbar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We'll be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe from Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novel City Adaptations on film and TV. My name is Leo. And my name's Abu. And we are back with
1: Dune Messiah. Dune Messiah! Episode two. Let's go! <laughs> Oh, my gosh. We continue to go deeper and deeper into this book, and I continue to be awed.
0: It's insane. Yeah.
1: Well, before we dive into today's pages, as always, let's blast through some quick housekeeping. As a reminder, this is a book club series where we will be diving into the pages of Dune Messiah, 50 pages at a time in each episode, and we hope you join us on this journey. A reminder... That we have already covered the entirety of the first book in a 10 part series very similar to this one. Right.
0: And to our patrons, we'd like to say thank you so, so much. Your support means absolutely everything in the world to us and uh, makes Gamjabar a possibility. So I would like to say to anybody on the fence know that we post spicy, not, sometimes not safe for work bloopers behind the scenes and. <laughs> Bonus content every week for patrons, so consider supporting us at Patreon.com/slashGamjabar. Speaking of Abu, we've got some Quizatz Haderacks to to shout out.
1: Yeah! Oh my gosh! Case Aiken and Nathaniel Hyde are two Quizatz Haderack level patron members. Their generosity clearly knows no bounds, and we are immeasurably grateful. Thank you, Case and Nathaniel. And of course, thank you to all of our listeners and all of our patrons. Every little bit helps keep this show going.
0: It really does. We also have, you know, if you're in the mood for some merchandise, we have some Dune merchandise available. So, you know, if you want to flex on those dweebs who haven't read this book series, <laughs> find out which of your friends are <laughs> worth keeping, which of them are, <laughs> I don't know, lay people who don't read dope books. So check out gomjabarshop.com. We've got shirts, shirts. We've got a an enamel pin, which looks so, so, so good. We've got a sticker and some other stuff. Check it out.
1: Definitely. And this is a book club series, and we want your voice to be a part of it. So email us at gomjabarpodcast at gmail.com. And if you are a patron or are thinking of becoming one, we have a Discord server exclusively for patrons, which is the best way to get in touch with us and geek out about Dune along
0: with us. Indeed. and just before we get to some of those messages from our listeners, one final, final bit of housekeeping. We are keeping this book club 100% spoiler free. That's right. So, fear not if you are forging this path for the first time in your life. We are going to talk about everything from Dune, the first book, but only up through the page that we've read for today's reading in Messiah. So, protecting your first experience if this is, in fact, your first experience.
1: Absolutely. Now, before we jump into the pages for today's reading, we do want to take a second to talk about some mailbag questions. And specifically today, we had some great questions from Evan James, who, like many of you listening, is reading Dune Messiah for the first time. Thank you for joining us on this incredible journey, Evan. Yeah. (laughs) Buckle up. (laughs) Now, Evan wrote us this iconically lengthy email, which so many of you do. We love it. Keep doing that. It's great. It's like our scripts. (laughs) Yeah, they're so long. It's incredible. (laughs) Instead of reading that email in its entirety, we're going to do our best to paraphrase some of the questions that he had in that email for the sake of time.
0: So the first question is, why did Paul allow the jihad to happen? The Fremen don't seem interested in political power or waging war across the galaxy, so why couldn't Paul just tell them not to do that? (laughs) He is their god. Also, couldn't Paul just cut off spice for any house that rebels against him as a way to kind of force them to submit?
1: Really great set of questions and all sort of connected to this idea that isn't Paul the most powerful person in the galaxy? Why can't he just tell the Fremen not to do it? Right, right. You know? And we touched on this a little bit in our previous book club episode in one of the takeaways. But as a first-time reader, it can be a little confusing to square the fact that Paul has these incredible, almost Marvel superhero-esque powers, (laughs) but doesn't seem to have this unlimited power in the galaxy, especially here in Dune Messiah. And we'll actually see more examples of that all throughout this book. So like we said, Evan, buckle up. Things are going to get weird. (laughs) Breaking
0: down the question a little bit, let's cite the real world for a second. Looking at religions and religious figures, historically, very few of them, if any at all, have actually been able to stop their supporters from being violent, like to be clear, mm, right?
1: Unfortunately, yeah.
0: Unfortunately. Every major religion today very clearly forbids killing, and yet it happens in the name of religion all the time. Yes. The words and commandments of religious leaders and texts are very easily twisted, as we see in our real world, but as is also the case here in Dune. You know, sort of the example being like, but Muad'Dib didn't technically say not to kill them, though, right? Like, c- can't I kill most of them? Right? <laughs> and it's like, no, guys, ask him. And he'll be like, no, please don't. Uh, yeah. But they they probably don't, you know, even if they did. Right? Even if he said, guys, don't kill them, there's always going to be those kind of nefarious actors within the ranks who twist it to fit their own agendas, right?
1: Definitely. Now, secondly, you have to remember that Paul was forced to use the Fremen to quell a number of rebellions and uprisings in his empire. We talked about in the previous episode the origins of that jihad actually started with great houses. Rebelling against Paul's leadership. And thus, Paul had to use these Fremen to assert his control as the new emperor to clamp down on any rebellions from the great houses who wouldn't accept his rule. And it's important to also remember that Paul is not a fairly elected official. In what? any sense of the word.
0: What? No, I remember the election at the end of Doom, it's the famous scene.
1: Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. The poll watchers. I remember it. it was uh-huh. great.
0: Yeah. It was a close race. They had to recount. Yeah. No, none Carson. of that <laughs> happened. There were no
1: poll watchers because there were no polls. Right. Right. Paul took the throne. Yeah. And he's not even like the rightful heir or even loosely the rightful heir. He's not even like the cousin of some cousin of some cousin. Like he simply took the throne from the previous emperor. He is literally a usurper. Right. And if you violently take power, there's going to be a lot of bloodshed that follows and that inevitably happens in order to assert that control. That's what he has to do. Right. So what started out as a political necessity, as a way to control his empire, to assert his rule, then evolved into a religious jihad. Because as we know, Fremen culture and politics are deeply intertwined with their religion.
0: Right, right.
1: That's the thing that Paul in the first book manipulates maybe too strong a word, but certainly used to his advantage to achieve that victory that happens at the end of the first book. He really feeds into this idea that he is the messiah. But it starts to backfire here. He needs the Fremen to assert his control. The Fremen believe deeply in their religion and when they start seeing these great houses commit to what to them is sin because going against Paul, the Messiah, is sin in their eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It really becomes this religious fanaticism where it's no longer just about asserting Paul's role as emperor, but asserting Paul's role as God. And if you don't get in line behind that, the Fremen will have some words with you. <laughs>
0: By which we mean some Chris knives. They will have some Chris knives with you. <laughs> the other the other side of this, beyond what he can and cannot do, is what he should or shouldn't do politically. Like, what is the smart move in this scenario? And cutting off the spice, as you kind of pointed out, would be a great way of clamping down on maybe one person, but as a broad strategy would be a terrible political move.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Paul has that option, But it would immediately push people who are maybe on the fence into a very actively anti-Paul place and really would be inviting a galactic war. I mean, if he took that sort of drastic measure, we would see basically what Alia points out in the council meeting, right, from today's reading. You know, she has this quote, you don't back people into a corner, not if you want them to remain peaceful, end quote.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Great question, Evan. Yeah. Now, Evan actually had a second question in that email as well. He asked, Paul is a Mentat and has prescient visions, so why can't he just calculate a way to appease Irulan? Why not just sleep with her and use his Prana Bindu control to make sure he never impregnates her? Keep dangling that carrot of maybe having an heir in front of her to keep her in line basically, why is he not more politically savvy and cunning when dealing with the troublesome Irulan?
0: Yeah, (laughs) it's an interesting question. And (laughs) I've got a thought about that. But uh, let's let's address the kind of meat of the question first. Um, I think it might be simpler than we could make it out to be. You know, we could make it this complex answer about in-world techniques and that sort of thing. But Paul is, let us not forget, human. And he... Deeply, deeply loves Chani. And although he is currently the godhead at the head of a jihad that's killing lots and lots of people, he is at the core an Atreides leader. He's a good guy who believes in honor and believes in doing what's right. And although Chani is like, yo, you should do basically what Evan thinks you should do. Right. I remember when Chani said that in the book. She's like, yo, Evan's got a good idea. You should <laughs> sleep with Irulan, appease her, you know, do what's right for the the empire. And Paul, sure enough, is thinking, no, I couldn't do that to you. Like, that's just too much pain to deliver to Chani. That's too, that's too terrible, too awful, you know?
1: Yeah. At the end of the day, I think the answer to this question is really simple. Paul is a good guy who really loves his girl and doesn't want to fuck around with this other girl that he honestly doesn't even like. Right. No matter the political necessity. Frankly, like I think that could be a character flaw if you look at it from a purely political standpoint, right? Right. It would behoove him to be a little more cunning to manipulate Irulan a little more aggressively, but he doesn't. He's just kind of like, you're not going to have my baby, I'm not going to sleep with you, but you can do whatever you want. Go sleep around, whatever.
0: Yeah. It's like tough love. It's like... I don't want to be shitty to you. I'm just going to tell you straight up, you're not going to get get a kid from me. Like, sorry, pull the bandaid off quickly. Deal with that however you want to. I'm here to support you, but I will not give you this thing. It does seem like the thing that an Atreides would do.
1: Yes. And look, Paul's honesty here, his Atreides attitude about all of this is what makes him our protagonist, right? right, right. It's what makes him human and relatable. And for us as the reader, It's what puts us on his side. Even if he is responsible for a bloody jihad across the galaxy, you can still be like, ah, but he's not cheating on his girl.
0: (laughs) Right, right.
1: You know? Yeah. And, you know, I, I kind of joke about that, but really, like, Paul is a conflicted character in all of this. And if we didn't see this more human side of him, it would be very easy to be like, wow, he's a giant dick now that he's the emperor.
0: Yeah. I also, man... I actually really like this idea. Jessica taught Paul as one of the first males in history that we know of with the Pranabendu control. You know, she's giving him these Bene Gesserit techniques. I wonder if he could even do that. Like, can Paul (laughs) not impregnate someone using Pranabendu?
1: I mean, is that even a Pranabendu technique considering it's a Bene Gesserit skill?
0: I mean, I'm assuming, considering Pranabendu doesn't specify. A set of like nerve control. It's just like overall nerve control. I'm assuming in theory, it approaches. Maybe Paul could like transfer how he learned how to move his like left pinky fingernail <laughs> to <laughs> you know the internal parts his of him scrotum. <laughs> scrotum. I mean, how do you teach a Benny Jesuit sister to not conceive or to conceive a specific gender? Like that is already pretty abstract. So yeah probably he could apply it but i do like the idea of jessica going uh yeah i'm just not going to touch that (laughs) yeah right you figure it out on your own you know experiment with uh you know whatever
1: whoever's around but you're on your own for that one but i mean look the birds and the bees conversation is awkward enough for parents (laughs) yeah imagine the sperm control conversation (laughs) like damn you when know? the
0: bee is going to sting a bird and wants to keep <laughs> the stinger from, yeah, it's.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, wild stuff. But again, a really great observation from Evan. And yeah, totally. as a first time reader, I'm kind of blown away, Evan, that you would think of something like that because I've read and reread the book multiple times and uh, never once thought about sperm control as a possible <laughs> idea. So really, like truly hats off to you. Such great questions. And There is a ton more in that email that we don't have time to get into today, but we love to get emails and questions like this. And this is, of course, stuff that other listeners might be thinking as well. So continue to write to us and we will continue to include them in these episodes. Thanks again for writing, Evan. You have set the example (laughs) for the rest of our listeners.
0: Yeah. yeah. Now that we've talked about Evan's incredible questions, let's get into the reading from today's uh, assigned reading. And God, there's so much to unpack during these chapters, even though it's only three chapters, (laughs) but we're going to do our best to keep it moving and we'll see how it goes.
1: Right. Okay. Chapter five. We are back with everybody's favorite Tleilaxu shapeshifter, Saito. Gross. And we join him on Arrakis now. He is being... Sort of lightly interrogated by Farouk, one of the veterans of Paul's troops and the 12-year jihad who is now seemingly retired and living off of his hard work in this village in Arakin, no longer living that siege lifestyle, which will become important in just a second. Right. And actually, a fun fact, Farouk might sound like a familiar name because we met him in the first book. Yeah. He is the one who asked about those leader johns of jessica's water after paul's naming ceremony and he's also the one that broke the news to paul that chani's father liat kynes was dead so he played a small role in the first book and it's cool to see he got his returning character (laughs) yeah he got his sag card and uh he got that bag you know you get those two speaking lines or whatever it is yeah (laughs) now saito who reminder is a face dancer a shapeshifter has chosen, this is a weird flex, has chosen (laughs) to appear as Duncan Idaho.
0: I mean, I would if I could. (laughs) (laughs) Just walking around people like, damn, that guy fucks.
1: (laughs) Right, right. Look, not a bad choice on a normal day in a normal place. Yeah. But a horrible choice if you are conspiring against the emperor (laughs) and are in his capital city.
0: Yeah. Arakeen, where no one knows what Duncan Idaho <laughs> looks like. Bro was getting drunk every night in that city.
1: Right, right. He <laughs> like fucked his way through ago. that city. <laughs> it's a bit of a weird flex here. And even Tail is kind of like, oh shit, should I have done this? Will someone <laughs> yeah. recognize me? And turns out Farouk did know of Duncan Idaho, I guess, but his memory is a little foggy and he's not entirely certain. He kind of brings it up with sidetail but... It doesn't end up being a major thing. Right. Again, it's been over 14 years since probably Farouk saw Duncan. And, uh, you know, he's seen plenty between now and then. (laughs) We also learn in this section that Farouk is part of this conspiracy against Muad'Dib. He may not be in that core Oceans 11 group that we talked about in the previous chapters, but he is disenchanted with Muad'Dib. With the emperor, with the jihad, and everything that's taken place since the Atreides landed on Arrakis. And the core reason why Farouk is turning against Paul is because he is old school. A lot of things have changed under Paul's rule on Arrakis, in the empire at large, and with Fremen culture. And he wants to go back to the good old days. Right. The good old days where you lived in a siege, you stabbed offworlders, and you rode a worm off into the sunset. <laughs> Yeah, I find this really interesting because as a millennial who, you know, like, okay, boomer is such a thing in our current <laughs> culture and real yeah. life, uh-huh. this idea that like, oh, there's a group of people who wishes they could go back to the quote unquote old days because they don't realize how bad the old days actually were. Right, right. Rose tinted glasses, all that good stuff. Yeah. Farouk, sure. Like, maybe yes, he's an older Fremen. Maybe he is part of that <laughs> okay, boomer generation. <laughs>
0: yeah. Is Farouk a Karen? Is that what you're saying?
1: <laughs> Farouk is a Karen. I maybe. Wa-
0: I want to talk to your knave, all right? <laughs> Where's your name? Bring me your Messiah right now. <laughs>
1: I'm not wearing my you, still you mask. You can't make me take off this mask, okay? <laughs> my nose plugs fucking stay where they are, okay? Where's the nabe? <laughs> Bring me your name. <laughs>
0: God, Jesus. all the all the Gen Z Fremen are like, ugh.
1: <laughs> ugh. I haven't worn my nose plugs in days. God. That's so chuggy. So chuggy, <laughs> Farouk. You're so chuggy, my guy. So chuggy. At the same time, look, we're ragging on Farouk for being chuggy, which, it, of course, <laughs> he is. It, that's undeniable. Don't write us emails about how Farouk is not chuggy. <laughs> At the same time, he has a point. Paul has come in changed the face of the empire, changed the face of Arrakis, and thrust a cultural change upon the Fremen. Yeah. So he does have a point. It's a very cheeky point, but the point stands, (laughs) that Paul has made these cultural changes that, in his eyes, make the Fremen less than what they used to be. Right. Now, Farouk does his best to slyly answer some of Saitel's questions, but the conversation does veer off course a little bit, and we <laughs> yeah. learn that Farouk, he, he gets a little reminiscent. Right. We learned that Farouk was a commander in Paul's Jihad, of course. He's a veteran of that conflict. And we also learned that Farouk's son lost his eyes on the planet of Naraj when something called a stone burner was used in one of the conflicts there. We also learned that Farouk at some point wanted to buy Tlailaxu eyes for his son but his son refused and instead chose to remain blind. And if you have questions about why, hang tight. More about Laxu eyes in the morsels later in the episode. Reminiscing aside, Sitail really wants to get down to business and asks Farouk straight up, have you been inside the Imperial Keep? Right. Can you tell me what's going on? Where does Paul sleep?
0: Yeah. Is he allergic to peanuts?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Is he allergic to peanuts? We have this whole idea about peanuts. Will it work?
0: <laughs> We're building our entire conspiracy around a <laughs> supposed nut allergy. <laughs> we hope it works. Right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> now, Farouk's answers are a mixed bag. Yes. No, not really. Maybe he has been inside the Imperial Keep at one point for this fancy dinner that Paul threw for his jihad commanders. Right. Farouk was very disgusted by everything going on in that dinner not as interested in any of the slave girls that were apparently offered to the commanders that night. Sightail is like, okay, I got you. I hear you. Let's focus back on the Atreides. <laughs> right, right. Less musing, more telling me about the Imperial Keep. Yeah. Of course, Farouk continues to reminisce, but this is really interesting, and I loved this part of this conversation, no matter what sidetail may be feeling at the moment. <laughs> right? Farouk tells us that he had listed in the Jihad because of a promise to see something called the sea. And he does. On the planet of Fail, he wades into the water. He drinks from it, which is not recommended. Don't follow for example. That's a lot of salt. <laughs> <laughs> you can't just drink ocean water. <laughs>
0: Who knows? Maybe that water is like, I don't know, <laughs> toxic. Oceans are not all the same. You know, that's a right. bad move. But he's impressed. Whatever.
1: Yeah. And despite the high salt content, this is very much a spiritual moment for him. He is moved by this experience, getting to wade out into this water that reaches all the way to the horizon. He can't see the other end of it, something he's never seen in his life. And he emerges from this water, and there's a lot of religious imagery here, sort of a baptism for him. Self
0: baptism, yeah.
1: Yeah. He emerges from this water, a new man. And in that moment, He feels cured from the jihad. Right. It's a really moving moment, and the way Farouk is describing it really sucks Sightail in, surprisingly. Quote, Sightail found himself sharing the old Fremen's awe. End quote.
0: Yeah, I love that.
1: Now, Sightail does, despite all the empathy, does have this (laughs) incredible thought. Quote, this one is garrulous, but deep. And... For the folks that don't know what garrulous means, like us, we had to Google it too. The definition basically means talkative. So <laughs> sidetails like, yo, this guy fucking talks too much, but what he's saying, real deep shit.
0: We get that feedback <laughs> a lot in our listener mail.
1: <laughs> right, right. God. Much like this podcast.
0: Yeah. <laughs> garrulous, but deep. That's our, that's our goal.
1: Yeah. <laughs> that is straight up the motto. Okay, let's wrap up chapter five because... This conversation finally comes to a close. Farouk's son stops playing that ballaset in the background. He's been playing this entire time, which lends like a very creepy vibe throughout this whole chapter. But the music suddenly cuts off and we realize that the music was actually a trigger that was transmitting information to Sightail's D-Stron, the D-Stron that's installed in him. And when that task is complete, he has all the information he needs. And so... Sightail asks to meet Othame's daughter, and unfortunately for everyone in the room at this point, Sightail kills Farouk and then kills Farouk's son. Right. And Othame's daughter doesn't notice all of this happening because she is very, very much addicted to Samuta, and seemingly in this scene at this point is sort of like so high that she's tripping out of reality and doesn't know what's happening around her, it's clear that Zytel is somewhat sympathetic to all of his victims in this scene, because the chapter ends on a very ominous note. Quote, now the young woman would have to be given her chance. End quote. Uh, Creepy. (laughs) Creepy stuff.
0: We are into chapter six, and buckle up, folks, we're having an Imperial Council (laughs) meeting. (laughs) From Alia's perspective, we note that pretty much everyone is tense. This is not like a laid-back, fun, casual meeting. Everyone's here. We're at this golden council table. And between them, between these, like, five people, we've got a dozen secrets and objectives. Paul commands Korba, the suck-up, to take up his place in leading the masses in their prayer. is like, no, but they're going to expect you. Paul... <laughs> rebuttals in almost like a chillingly apathetic way. He says, quote, put on your turban. They'll never know at this distance. End quote. Yikes. Like, man, Paul is fully checked out at this point. He's like, <laughs> oh, God, someone else be the Messiah of today. Just senioritis. Yeah. Just dress up one of the I don't know, put a scarecrow up there. They'll they won't figure it out. Right. Stilgar, in the meantime, has Fully become Paul's personal assistant, which is kind
1: of devastating. Yeah, that's a glow down, my guy.
0: It's a glow down, bro. No kidding. And it's really genuinely hard to picture Javier Bardem and just Stilgar as a character. You know, we know by Fremen power structures that he's one of the most capable fighters in the Fremen period. And here he is sorting papers, pulling up different folders trying to keep the meeting going. <laughs> yeah. It's that same sense that Stilgar is no longer his own man. He is a part of the machine of Mwandeep. Next up on the docket, Stilgar reminds them, the Tupil Treaty. Basically, the political sanctuary planet, Tupil, remains the last kind of resting ground for Lancerad members, and the Guild wants Paul to kind of re-up and kind of sign this treaty without telling him exactly where it is Stilgar doesn't like this as a fremen he's thinking about the tactical qualities of having a whole place that they can't see or don't know where it is paul agrees to sign the treaty though he later on basically adds in as part of that agreement that in exchange for that signature the guild will basically have to take his side against the ixians who, like so many of us, just don't want to pay tax. <laughs> they're, like, they're like, no, let, don't charge us so much. And Paul's like, well, no, going to charge you, going to charge you tax. Sorry, buds. <laughs> I actually kind of love this detail, that little negotiation. Yeah, it's, me too. It really does show that Paul, young Paul, has become quite the savvy kind of political figure. He knows how to levy these forces against one another. Yeah. During this conversation, Stilgar asks the question we all might be thinking at this point uh, regarding Tupil. Hey, Paul, can't you, like, fucking just look at it? (laughs) Like, can't you just see it, Mr. Kwisatz Haderach? And Paul answers in a way that we will get into a little bit in the takeaways. But um, there's a lot to chew on here about prescience and causality. Side note to all of this, Stilgar, as much as he's sort of Glowed down in all of this. He's now kind of a paper pusher. I do appreciate the character writing from Frank here. That you know, th- there's this moment that Paul explains his his why he can't just use his prescient vision to see Tupil. and after that kind of confusing as fuck TED talk, <laughs> Stillgar is like, "Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, okay. Uh, what about your signature, though?" <laughs> and I kind of love it, you know. And Paul has this little this little reflection quote. The issue of the Oracle, by Stilgar's judgment, had been closed. Stilgar aimed only at victory, not at discovering truth. Peace, justice, and a sound coinage, these anchored Stilgar's universe. He wanted something visible and real, a signature on a treaty. End quote.
1: Ugh, oh, I love that so much.
0: It's great, and I think it's, it really shows that Frank understands his characters, it is 100% the type of thing Stilgar would do based on everything that he does in Dune to say, okay, what you said is confusing and ultimately what we need is a path forward and that path forward is whether or not you're signing this piece of paper.
1: He's a man of action. He's a man of things he can touch and see and feel. Right. He's not out here trying to talk theoretical time, space (laughs) with the Messiah.
0: Right, exactly. He's like leaving that to Korba you're right. This is what made him a nape. I mean, he he's, an, he's a man of action. He's a man of, there are things I'm not going to understand, but what I need to do is be able to act. And yes. this is brilliant, brilliant character writing from Frank. We also get three more sort of rapid fire discussions here, each with their own sort of little takeaway. Up first, a uh, constitution request from Chome. And in <laughs> bold short, bold, yeah, bold. Uh, In short, Paul's like, no.
1: (laughs) Very officially,
0: (laughs) fucking no. Right. The next topic, the Ixian Confederacy wants to pay fewer taxes. But again, Paul leverages his 2 peel signature with the guild against any possible complaints. You're going to fucking pay or you're not going to be able to travel, Ixians who rely on (laughs) trade and travel for all of your money. So, (laughs) done. Shut that down. And then finally, Irulan's father... Shaddam IV, remember him. Uh, he's been left with, and I, I thought this was nice, he's been left with a police force, a personal police force. It is quite a few men. He was yeah. he was left with a whole legion of Sardakar, which, again, as we pointed out in one of the uh, morsels at the end of the first book, is about 30,000 Sardaukar, which, wow, <laughs> so many men. Uh, the recent report, is that Shaddam, with this personal police force, that he's really been given generously, he's been drilling them on landing maneuvers. (laughs) Just fucking suspicious, Shaddam. What are you doing? What are you doing, Shaddam? I saw you vent, you dumb bastard. What are you doing? You're clearly the imposter. Right. Irulan's like, what? No. What if he's bored? I don't know. Like, it's not... It's nothing. Paul's like, Irulan, shut up. Tell your dad if we catch him doing that again, he's going to die. Like, I right. I don't know what to tell you. And it's not even, to be clear, Paul's not even saying, I'm going to go kill him or Ali going to go kill him. Paul and Ali are pointing out here, Irulan, you don't get it. If one of the Fidekin, if one of these commanders of the jihad find out that Shaddam, the like, heretic who doesn't believe in god paul is doing anything vaguely threatening they will fucking kill him (laughs) like yeah he doesn't understand the danger he's in and i kind of love this because this is to evan's question a reminder that paul isn't necessarily in control like right paul can be like yo Irulan, he's safe as long as he doesn't draw the wrong attention (laughs) because if word gets out, if someone tweets about him doing landing maneuvers, bro, he's he's done. He's no chance.
1: Right. And I, the emperor, can no longer guarantee his safety.
0: Yeah. <laughs> My Fedakin are wild. <laughs> 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 Tell him to watch himself. And she's like, okay, sure. The next topic in the meeting is one that Paul basically tries to dodge. You know, he's it's it's about the Benny Gesserit wanting a kid from Paul. Paul tries to dodge this. He's like, no, nah, give them the normal excuses. Moving on. And Irulan's like, please. And Paul doesn't even say anything else. He just nods his head sharply, which we'll talk about kind of what he's saying and not saying again in the takeaways briefly. But Chani does persist here. And again, tragically, Chani doesn't know that she's being issued contraceptives by Irulan. So in addition to this just being sad, Right? Like, Chani's like, I don't know what to do. You should have a son. I'm kind of with Irulan on this. Irulan then has the fucking gall to try using the voice on Paul.
1: This made me mad.
0: I got got actually angry. I was like, Irulan, sometimes you're just a little bit absent-minded. This is so fucking dumb. What are you doing?
1: This is beyond your capabilities and you know it.
0: <laughs> Check yourself. It's just an absurd attempt. And Paul, perhaps mirroring our outrage and anger, Abu, gets up from the table and just walks away. <laughs> Doesn't say anything. <laughs> walks to the window, and just looks out over the city. Everyone at this point is like, oh my God, he's so mad. Ooh, Irulan, you fucked up. <laughs> like, <laughs> Everyone's kind of quiet, waiting to see what he says. But internally, he's literally just fantasizing about running away. He's like, you know, to Peel, speaking of it,
1: (laughs) thinking about it these days,
0: what if we went there? You know, like, what if Johnny and I just fled, went there? Wouldn't that be great?
1: Again, mirroring the words of his own father at the start of the first book.
0: Yo, good point. He pictured, what if we just fled the system, right? Yeah. And it's in this spiraling moment that Chani takes his hand. She slips her hand into his, and we get a sense in this moment of just how much he means to her, but also how intuitive she is, how intelligent she is, and how much she grounds this godhead to mortality and how much she ties him to kind of who he is and who he was and who he will be. Anyway, so he turns around and he says, "No, dear <laughs> one He's like, "No, <laughs> I thought about it. You know, no, you're not going to have a kid." The final piece of business to kind of wrap up this meeting is the uh, Spacing Guild, who is requesting, basically, forming an embassy on Arrakis. Now, so far, this has been denied because the Fremen kind of just don't like the Guild, but. For now, Paul is like, you know what? Let's meet with the steersman because I've seen this meeting happen in my visions. Basically, Irulan shits a brick. <laughs> Irulan's like, <laughs> ah, what? Oh, no. What? You, sorry. Excuse me. You saw this meeting. And Paul's like, no, I, I also love this writing. Paul like mimics her tone. No, I didn't see the meaning. Idiot. <laughs> like, <laughs> so so <funny>. petty. <laughs> so yeah, So funny to me. He's like, no, I didn't I didn't see the steerman, you dummy. I can only see where a one has been, kind of is and will go because I don't see them. Right. It's like right. the gaps in my vision, I can tell where they're gonna be. So I know that the meeting happens in my visions because I see this like blank spot. And Irulan is like, oh, thank God. Okay, now just to find out if he's allergic to peanuts. No, just kidding. (laughs) She's like, okay, we're safe. We're good. He can't see prescient beings. Cool.
1: Right. It confirms their theory and lets her know the conspiracy is safe.
0: Yeah, except still Alia. Like, stop relaxing, (laughs) Irulan.
1: Alia over there, the wild card. Yeah. Speaking of Alia, let's move on to chapter seven. The final chapter for today's reading starts off with Alia looking down onto the throne room from a little spy window of hers as Edric, the Space and Guild Envoy, and his entourage arrive. And in that entourage is the Duncan Idaho Gola that we talked about in the previous book club. Right. Here he is. Here he is in the flesh, in that <laughs> sexy, sexy, sexy flesh. hot flesh. <laughs> <laughs> Edric presents this gift, this Duncan Idaho Gola to Paul. And we learned that the Gola's name is Hate, (laughs) H-A-Y-T, quote, Sire, there's no divining how or why the Tleilaxu bestow names, end quote. (laughs) I don't know, Edric. I don't know, my guy. This one seems pretty fucking on the nose.
0: (laughs) Although, actually, you know, to be fair, to be fair for Frank's writing, there is a kind of deeper level here. And this was brought up in the Discord by Robert Pierce. This is actually potentially a reference to the Arabic word for life, hayat. Sort of double meaning, play on words, a little bit of a pun, but utterly lost on us. (laughs) Like (laughs) the idea. And again, this is it's it's brilliant if this is a little bit conjecture, but it's brilliant to name a gola, something who's been brought back to life or life that is created as the arabic word for life or a play on that word but yeah you know maybe maybe just in defense of the name hate which just god it sounds dumb (laughs) (laughs) no it's not it doesn't sound that dumb. it sounds dumber than it looks i'll just leave it at that
1: yes when you're reading it you can kind of ignore the fact that it's hate but when you have to talk about it out loud or in a podcast, you're suddenly like, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> this guy's walking around being like, call me hate. <laughs> you know?
0: It's like a WWE character. You're like, okay, fine. Whatever. Right,
1: right. Uh, Undertaker vs. Hate. Tonight <laughs> at nine.
0: Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Yeah,
1: <laughs> With a surprise appearance from love. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And Paul! (laughs) (laughs) And Paul! All hail the emperor. Hey. Moving on from silly names, the gift has been presented to Paul. And Paul and Stilgar are naturally suspicious of this, quote, Tleilaxu thing, as they refer to it. And so Paul questions hate. But all throughout this conversation with hate, Paul is kind of feeling these powerful emotions that, as we know, the reader knows, the conspirators hoped he would feel. Quote, Paul felt himself tempted to reject the gift. Even as he felt the temptation, he knew he couldn't choose that way. This flesh made demands on House Atreides, a fact the enemy well knew. End quote.
0: Oh, there it is. That Atreidian honor.
1: That honor. They're using that against him and also reminding him of it.
0: Loyalty goes both ways. Again, it's, it's, it's a give and take. You know, that's what made the Atreides as powerful as they were.
1: Right. And ultimately, what the conspirators want happens because Paul ends up accepting this gift, knowing full well that it is some sort of trap. He still cannot reject it. He then dismisses Edric. And informs him on the way out. He's like, hey, close the door. Also, by the way, by the way, <laughs> by the way postscript: script. Yeah. Reverend Mother Guy's Helen Moheim has been apprehended and she is in the dungeons. <laughs> quote, her presence on your ship will be an item in our talks. End quote. <laughs> Holy shit.
0: I love it. Oh, hey, uh, by the way, before you go, uh fucking arrested uh, Moheim. Hope you're cool with that. We'll talk about it. I mean, (laughs) we're going to fucking talk about it, guy.
1: Right. Jesus. (laughs) That's like when your parents are like, have a good day at school. We'll talk about your grade card when you're home.
0: (laughs) You're like, okay, how do I never go home again? (laughs) (laughs) Right. You're just
1: sweating the whole day at school. (laughs) Uh, That is a very particular example for a reason. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> I was gonna say, actually, don't relate. But uh, I learned a little bit about you today, Abu.
1: <laughs> now, once Edric leaves the room, I'm sure profusely sweating in his tank. <laughs> oh fuck! Oh fuck! Right. Oh fuck! Oh fuck! Hate and Paul then have a bit of a heart to heart, and Paul just drops all pretense. He cuts to the core of it. "Quote: What should I do to protect myself from you?" End quote. And hate's response is just as direct quote: "Send me away, my Lord." End quote." And we know that hate is not playing some deeper game here. We know that this is supposedly the truth from him because hate is both a mentat and a Zensuni philosopher, which, as Paul puts it, is a, quote unquote, "double ration of honesty, right? Now, as they sort of have this small talk about Zensuni philosophy, hates throwing philosophical ideas at Paul, Paul is countering. Paul is trying to decipher how the heck this Gola is meant to take him down. Like, what is the plot within plot here? What are the conspirators hoping to achieve? Why are his pockets stuffed with peanuts? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Right. What's with all the peanuts? I love peanuts. I love them. Hit me with that crunchy peanut butter. (laughs)
0: Just that crunchy squad rise
1: up. (laughs) (laughs) And in a gut wrenching conclusion to this little chat that they have, hate repeats himself. "Quote, send me away, sire," hate said, and it was Duncan Idaho's voice, full of concern for the young master. Paul felt trapped by that voice. He couldn't send that voice away. Even when it came from a Gola, you will stay, he said, and we'll both exercise caution and quote, that was painful to read for me. The minute I read Duncan Idaho's voice full of concern for the young master, I was like tearing up.
0: Yeah, it's, you know, again, we don't get a lot of time with Duncan in Dune before he's fucking killed. But it's clear that he was one of Paul's only friends. Again, Paul didn't really have a lot of peers on Caladan, And the idea of him seeing, with the exception of the metal eyes, his old friend, his old teacher, his old comrade, all of that brotherly love being there for Paul and being entrapping him emotionally. It's tragic. It's So heartbreaking.
1: Yeah. Ah, such a powerful conversation back and forth. During all of this, by the way, (laughs) Alia is still in her little spy hole, her little spy window, looking down on what has just traversed. And she is just as suspicious of this Duncan, Idaho, Gola as everyone else is in the room. But she does weirdly find herself drawn to this Gola, which, of course, we can't blame her for. (laughs) Sure. Quote. She felt a positive desire to be near this new man. Perhaps to touch him. He's a danger to both of us, she thought. End quote.
0: <laughs> yeah, same. Yep. <laughs> it's Duncan, Idaho. Come on. Yeah. Weird. I'm like super attracted to this very attractive man. I, it, it defies explanation.
1: <laughs> yeah. And again... Exactly what the conspirators wanted.
0: Yeah. The Tlalactsu called it.
1: <laughs> the Tlalactsu called it. Yeah. And that's where we end this chapter and today's section of the reading. This ominous note Duncan has been accepted into the Imperial household, and things are seemingly going just as the conspirators hoped.
0: Good Lord. Man, for a few chapters that are mostly people talking.
1: Yeah. <laughs> this,
0: is, this is so intense. I know. Well, with the summary out of the way, we're going to talk about our key takeaways. But first, we're going to take a quick break. So stick around. When we're back, we're going to talk about Muad'Dib, the Messiah. Stay tuned.
1: Okay, welcome back, folks. Let's jump right into our takeaways for today's reading. So this first takeaway, I really wanted to kind of dig deep into Muad'Dib as this prophetic figure, as this god for the Fremen and for the people of the empire. In today's reading, we get some more concrete examples of what exactly that might entail for him. We see that responsibility that he's very much got senioritis about leading the prayers for all the pilgrims that show up, we see a little bit more of what it actually means for Muadib to be that messiah for the empire, for the Fremen, and for Paul himself. So I wanted to dig a bit deeper into that.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So let's start with the Fremen. Clearly, there are fanatical supporters of Paul and his religion. There's the Kizarate, which we talked about. There's Korba sitting on his council, although put a pin in that because he clearly has some ulterior motives and a bit of a lust for power. Right. And then on the flip side, there are the Farouk's of the world. And obviously in these readings, we spent quite a bit of time with Farouk and he did a lot of reminiscing about his beliefs and his past. So we got this clear view of how disenchanted Farouk is with Paul, the jihad, and like I said earlier, basically everything that happened from the moment the Atreides touched down on Arrakis all those years ago.
0: Yeah. I mean, even going back, like real early on, we had Jameis, who's like, nah, I don't think he's the I don't think he's the main character. There have always been Fremen who were skeptics, Fremen who were maybe not as sold. They weren't as hopped up on that Messiah juice. (laughs) And Farouk is is certainly emblematic of that at this time, right? He's looking back. He's reminiscing. He's going, man, it was better. It was simple. We had our way of life. I was proud of our way of life. And then the Atreides showed up and everything changed from there. And although he didn't challenge Paul one-on-one to ritual knife combat the way so many Fremen did, we learned in Dune, so much so that Chani literally had to kill someone just to be like, God, this is getting out of hand. Let me just I, like knife some of these people and then they won't want to fight you. And Paul's like, okay, right, good, right. Call.
1: Like, good J- call. Like Jason put it in our previous episode, they fucked around and found out. <laughs> they
0: fucked around and found out. They <laughs>
1: literally asked for it. <laughs> and it's clear that Jameis and those other Fremen who challenged Paul and his legend were not an anomaly. Farouk. Has always been skeptical. He tells us this quote, men pointed to the first moon and said, His soul is there. Thus he was called Muadib. I did not understand all of this. End quote. Yeah. He's never like bought into this whole Muadib, Paul is the Messiah idea.
0: He's like, That doesn't really look like a mouse to me on the moon. <laughs> <laughs> God, it looks so much more like a little fox. I don't know. Like, you guys are weird. Right. Yeah.
1: Right. And this is so thematically important in this book because a big part of the sequel, a big part of Dune Messiah and why I personally think it's so important to read it, to understand Frank's message and the Dune story as a whole, is because this sequel is meant to subvert many of our expectations coming out of the first book. It is meant to burst our bubble of what we thought was a hero's journey that Paul went on what we thought was a victory for Paul at the end of the book, it's clear that what took place in the first book was just one side of a very complex story. And now here in Dune Messiah, we're getting the messier, darker side of it.
0: Yeah. This is also why I think it's really probably pretty necessary for Villeneuve to do a trilogy.
1: Absolutely.
0: Otherwise, this is just another, could be construed as another kind of cut and dry hero tale. You're absolutely right.
1: Now, this overall pessimism that we see throughout Messiah, this darker side of the story, extends even to the people that ostensibly support Muad'Dib. We discussed in the last episode in the Morsels that the Kiserate are the religious missionaries in Paul's empire that are spreading the word of his Godhead across the stars. Right. And outwardly, Korba is the leader of the Kisarate. They give him the title, the Kisarat, and he sits on Paul's council and presumably supports the emperor in all of his initiatives. But Alia, being <laughs> the absolutely incredible badass that she is, calls his ass out. And it's clear that the Kizarate aren't exactly the most popular group. Right. Quote, I know what's being said about your Kisarate. You're not divines. You are God's spies. End quote. (laughs) Woof. Cutting right to the core of it. Ali is not here to fuck around. Right. And that reveals to us that these religious missionaries might actually skew a bit more secret police.
0: (laughs) I mean, I keep bringing it up, but fucking Bronzo out here getting secretly abducted to like dungeons and then executed. Right. Is very secret police of the Kisarate. Like... That's well. That that rings that bell for me. No kidding.
1: Yeah, definitely. And you know, this isn't conjecture, and this isn't us reading too much into it. Korba himself, as a character in the writing, is presented as this untrustworthy and shady person who clearly has designs of his own. Uh, the one of the most powerful moments in this chapter was when he returns from leading that prayer out on the balcony in Paul's stead, and we get this pretty shocking quote corba took his seat at paul's left dark features composed eyes glazed by fanaticism he'd enjoyed that moment of religious power and yeah. quote
0: oh my gosh yeah
1: oh my god he got a taste of paul's power and loved it
0: he's into it yeah no kidding
1: and that should throw up red flags he's presented in such a way that we have to assume that corba has his own motives has his own lust for power.
0: Right. I mean, this dude's eager also. <laughs> like, later on, you know, the Constitution's being brought up. And Corba's like, oh, oh, uh, uh, religious Constitution. That'd be great. And Paul's like, no, <laughs> shut up. God damn it, Korba. You're so,
1: you're so right.
0: eager. Such a suck up. But as we're seeing, some of that might be out of his own desire for power.
1: Right. Okay, let me wrap up this first takeaway about Paul's godhead, because there's one more thing we haven't talked about, and that's the pilgrims that are always in Arakan that are coming and traveling to Arakin in droves. In that council meeting, when Paul walks away, everyone's like, oh shit, he's fuming. He's fuming, love. <laughs> Paul walks to the window and looks down at this throng of pilgrims who have come to Arrakis. And we get this quote, pilgrims. Their exercise in homelessness had become a disgusting source of wealth for his imperium. The Hajj filled the spaceways with religious tramps. They came, and they came, and they came. End quote. Mm. That's what Paul is thinking right now about the people that worship him.
0: <laughs> yeah, he's not really into it.
1: <laughs> he's not into this at all. The disgust is palpable. And he wonders, why? Why? These pilgrims are showing up, like what is compelling them to travel here to Arrakis to find some sort of absolution? And he thinks, quote, What was it the pilgrims really sought? Paul wondered. They said they came to a holy place, but they must know the universe contained no Eden source, no two-peel for the soul. End quote. Wow. So, uh, uh. Two-peel for the soul! Ah, <laughs> oh. it's so good. <laughs> it's so good! And again, just clues us in to how Paul's godhead is having an effect on everyone in the empire, right? And It's no longer just the Fremen worship him. Every planet that is consumed by his empire, his galactic empire, buys into Paul as the Messiah. And he, I mean, he observes this. He thinks to himself, quote, they came out of gratitude for the peace of Muad'Dib. Everywhere there is peace, Paul thought. Everywhere, except in the heart of Muad'Dib. End quote.
0: That's like an evanescence lyric. That is bleak. (laughs) Also, although I do, the the thought occurs to me, even Paul is sort of thinking in these dichotomous terms of Paul Atreides and Muad'Dib, Messiah of the Fremen, you know? Yeah. It's, It's a... Duality that existed from the moment of him sentencing Shaddam to Seleucus Secundus and t- taking all of his money uh, until now, where even now Paul is thinking in the term of Muadib and Muadib's heart. It's, bro, it's your heart. You are Muadib. But in many ways, Paul is, and in also many ways, Paul is not.
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, a tragic character. Okay, let me wrap up this takeaway. Sure. All of this is to say that it's clear that maybe the only guy out there who believes less in Muad'Dib than Farouk is Muad'Dib himself. He is disgusted by this whole prospect of him being a god and people worshiping him. This has been thrust upon him. And it's important to remember, just like we talked about with Evan's questions in the mailbag section at the top, being a god doesn't give Paul the unlimited power and control you'd expect. And in many ways, he's boxed in by everyone's expectations and the responsibilities of being a god. Again, he tells Korba to go lead that prayer, but how many hundreds and hundreds of times has he led that prayer? Because he's felt obligated to.
0: Right, right, right.
1: And so it's clear that despite being a messiah, despite being a god, despite being worshipped by Millions of pilgrims that travel to Arrakis. It's clear that the more power Paul gains, the less power he can actually exert, which is a really wild and interesting paradox in the way that power often works, even in the real world.
0: Yeah, no kidding. Well, into our second takeaway, and these two next takeaways are pretty quick. The first is about Paul's explanation of why he can't simply see to peel. And I do think that this is interesting because it does build our understanding of maybe how Paul and his prescience work together and how it doesn't, how it definitely doesn't work. (laughs) (laughs) We've talked at length about the issues with prescience, and so we can kind of keep this brief. But when Paul is asked if he could simply see the path into the future that would lead to Tupil, which makes perfect sense, he has some thoughts to share, but he finishes on this thesis. Quote, were I to seek to peel with prescience, Paul said, this might hide to peel. End quote. But taking a step back, Paul has this internal reflection. Quote, how could someone who'd never experienced the spice change of prescience conceive an awareness containing no localized space-time, no personal image vector, nor associated sensory captives end quote which wow i mean what does that that even mean but my my general understanding of this is again you can't understand prescience until you experience it and once you experience it you realize it's not as simple as i can figure out what's going to happen for me it's way less personalized it's way broader a vision so much so sometimes it's debilitating
1: Yeah, exactly. Prescience is just an indescribable thing that you just won't understand until you can do it also.
0: But also, I I can't help but think about this sentiment applied to, more broadly, the themes of the first book. Paul says, seeking, looking for Tupil may hide Tupil. And I can't help but think of a younger Paul, younger Paul Atreides, still trying to figure out Prescience, still trying to find these rules saying now in retrospect you know were i to try to stop the jihad with prescience this might guarantee the jihad (laughs) yeah i mean god bless tough stuff messiah is what a book and then our final takeaway briefly touching on you know we saw some similarities in this council chamber as well as in the then conversation with hate we see some similarities between paul and his father duke lay to atreides and i wanted to take a moment to kind of talk about bravura hand in hand with his kind of status as god paul in these sections is clearly stuck in this kind of ongoing uh, game of uh, perception and expectations you know what are the different power players in the room and how does he have to appear to everybody all at once and he's tired (laughs) he's tired of it and exhausted. This is why he takes these nighttime strolls <laughs> through arakeen Oh yeah. Between Stilgar, his old friend but now worshipper, the kizarate which I've said three different ways this episode, <laughs> and Irolan, who's you know not only Irolan who wants a baby with him, she's like fucking give me that seed. Uh, also, she's representing, of course, the, the Benny Jezret and the Spacing Guild. The only person in this room on Paul's side. Is basically Chani. Um, as a as a quick side note, Chani taking his hand is genuinely one of the sweetest moments in Dune
1: so far. Oh my god, the way it just grounds him.
0: Oh, uh, and just it comes out of nowhere, and we get the only other perspective is everyone's afraid of Paul because he's he's upset, but she knows to be near him and she knows yep. to approach him. It's like it, it's just so good. Chani is so good.
1: Yeah. I mean, to be fair, only she can approach him. Like, <laughs> right. If if Corba walks up and is like, "Let me take your hand, sire," <laughs> Corba slips the his his back into of Paul's, Paul's hand. Corba, <laughs> you dumbass, go sit back down. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that, that's the fan fiction. Yeah. Stilgar slips his hand into Paul's. <laughs> <laughs> Paul's like, oh, still. <laughs> anyway, sorry, tangent. Yeah. Great point. It is only Chani who knows that she can do this. I also, of course, I, I'm reminded of Chani going, fucking lay down, Paul. What are you doing?
1: Right. And Paul right. going,
0: wow. They she would... is his rock. Yeah, absolutely. She knows when to tell him to take his boots off and lay down.
1: And then take his pants off.
0: Ayo. <laughs> <Hey-o. Yeah. laughs> now, in this section, Paul is often lost in his thoughts. But if we take a moment and assess kind of what he's actually saying outwardly, He is careful. He is projecting a sense of kind of, uh, I see it as like caution, aloofness. He's only speaking when he really needs to. He's not really being a part of these longer conversations. He's being concise. He's being purposeful with what he says and does. And oftentimes he'll say something and then go, how are the Kizarate going to respond to this? How are they going to use those words? Interesting. Right. And this calls to mind for me, Duke Leto Atreides, in those first parts of Dune. We saw him having the conversations that he needed to have, but otherwise being pretty stoic and pretty self-assured and pretty, you know, he is the leader of House Atreides. He's the leader of planet Caladan, And yet, we have a despondent Duke Leto, in a moment of vulnerability, talking to Paul, saying, quote, Nothing wins more loyalty for a leader than an heir of Bravura, the Duke said. I, therefore, cultivate an heir of Bravura. End quote.
1: Wow. Uh, R.I.P. Duke (laughs) Plato.
0: I know. That beard. And also, (laughs) again, this is like the same chapter where he takes the anti-fatigue pills because he hadn't slept for three days. And he tells Paul, I have to be able to tell someone this. Like... I just need to be able to be vulnerable with someone, Paul. And that chapter was mind-blowing for me and I think for a lot of people because until that chapter, and after that chapter even, you know, we forget, but after that chapter even, Duke Leto is the stoic, charismatic, sure-footed leader. To see how tired and frustrated he was was absolutely eye-opening. And here we are, 15 years later-ish, you know, and Paul is stumbling his way into those same traps, yep. into those same behaviors. And finally, to kind of wrap up this thought, this rambling takeaway, uh, the Beni Gesserit and the Bene Telex clearly are hoping to, with hate, remind Paul of a more moral time. You know, the time of House Atreides and the time of Duke Leto. But in so many ways, Paul is his father's son. And we see that. We, we're not told it, but we're we're shown it in these chapters. And Paul is uh is is Moadib, he's the Kwisatz Haderach. he's a byproduct of the Beni Gesserit, the Missionaria Protectiva, and also generations and generations of breeding. But as Moheim points out in the movie, in Volnov's movie, you have more than one birthright boy.
1: Oof. Yep.
0: Paul is in an a and we see that and we're shown that in these chapters.
1: That's right. And that's today's takeaways, folks. Woo! <laughs> the many hats that Paul wears. Paul as the Messiah, as this Godhead. Paul trying to explain the visions to his council and being unable to do so. And the parallels of Paul to his father, this heir of bravura, having to be the emperor, never letting his guard down, always putting on the appropriate face when he is in front of someone else. Right. Right. And Chani maybe being the only person he can take the mask off with. It's wild stuff. And it just continues to paint this very tragic, tragic figure of Paul Atreides, Paul Wadib Atreides. I love it.
0: That's so good.
1: All righty. So up next, we have our spice morsels. There are so many goodies in this section. But before we dive into those Deep Dive Lore Nuggets. We're going to take one more quick break, but don't go anywhere. When we come back, we're going to talk about Tleilaxu Face Dancers, Tleilaxu Eyes, and much more. See you in a minute.
0: Welcome back. Hope you enjoyed your break. Let's get into these morsels. So the first one, we have the Tleilaxu Face Dancers, and uh, their genders, I guess. Mm. So, God, there is so much to say about the Benny Tle-Lex spy, assassin, dancer, folks. And as tempted as I am to take like 45 minutes to talk about it right now, so we don't have to do a Tolelaxu episode at some point, <laughs> I feel like this episode's already going to be long. So, let's briefly touch on what you need to know uh, moving forward. Face dancers can shift their appearance and voices to look and sound like anybody they've had time to observe. Master face dancers could even fool the closest associates of a target, though they needed appropriate time to kind of observe before their impression would be foolproof. The question might come up in your mind, how, how, how'd they do that? How can they do that? How are they able to do that? Especially because they are, to be clear, humans. They are not some weird alien creature. The Dune Encyclopedia specifies, quote, endowed the face dancers with these abilities by a combination of rigorous training, embryological manipulation, and incredibly delicate surgery. End quote. <laughs> now, recall what Saitail thought earlier during his kind of time with his co conspirators, they were all products of profound prana training, capable of muscle and nerve control, that few humans ever achieved but cytael a face dancer had muscles and nerve linkages the others didn't even possess end quote mm. so kind of in summary prana bendu sure but also surgery and embryological manipulation to have more muscles and nerve linkages than the average fella dangerous they're dangerous that's the point yeah face dancers are Dangerous. They can look like anybody, sound like anybody. With enough time to observe a character, they can become exactly them, so that their close friends, colleagues, even lovers wouldn't notice. Lovers, L- lovers, you know, multiple. <laughs> Again, we out here in our game it's hot. You got to escape the heat somehow.
1: Everybody confront your spouse. Double, triple check that they're not a face dancer.
0: <laughs> Indeed.
1: <laughs> Unfortunately. This next morsel is also about the Tleilaxu. Uh, Sorry for the double whammy of Benny Tleilax, but we got to talk about those Tleilaxu eyes. We get multiple references to these eyes in this reading. The first one is when Sightail and Farouk are speaking, and Farouk mentions that he tried to buy Tleilaxu eyes for his blind son. Quote, I offered to buy Tleilaxu eyes for him from your master's. But there's a story in the legions that Tleilaxu eyes enslave their users. And quote. Mm. And look, it's well established on this podcast that we're no Benny Tleilax fans. And the rest of the Imperium agrees with us. The Benny Tleilax don't exactly have a sterling reputation. (laughs) Think then what it could mean if the Tleilaxu had control over your organs of sight.
0: Yeah, insane.
1: Not only what that means metaphorically, but literally, you may not be seeing reality as it exists because the Tlalactu are tampering with it. That is a horrifying thought. Later on in today's reading, when Paul meets the Gola Hate, Paul muses to himself about the Tlalactu eyes that Hate has. Quote Why, for example, the mechanical eyes? Tlalactu boasted their metal eyes improved on the original. Strange then that more suit didn't wear them out of choice. And quote, um, great fucking point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Calling them out on their fucking shit. Good job, Paul. Right.
1: <laughs> Clearly, there is rumor that the eyes enslaved their users, but we don't have confirmation of it. All we can say is be careful at your next eye appointment, folks. <laughs> Try to really
0: observe your your doctor. See if they uh, give off any signs that they're impersonating someone. (laughs) Next up, we have Tupil. So, we mentioned Tupil back in our first ever book club episode. Remember Duke Leto speaking with Paul. Quote, All fades before melange. A handful of spice will buy a home on Tupil. End quote. Now, back then, it was kind of a throwaway reference to a far-off place. But now... It comes up nine times in this chapter. <laughs> it's all over the place. Topeel this, to peel that. As an example, Paul explains, quote, Topeel remains the place of sanctuary for defeated great houses. It symbolizes a last resort, a final place of safety for all our subjects. Exposing the sanctuary makes it vulnerable. End quote. Now, we talked about Tupil briefly in our spoiler-free episode, Planets of Dune, which you can check out. It's pretty cool. Uh, But the too-long-didn't-read for today, the TLDR for today, Tupil's secret location is at the heart of all of the modern power structures in Dune and has been a perfectly kept secret for over 10,000 years.
1: Insane.
0: 10,000-year secret. Crazy. Wild stuff. I can't keep a secret for 14 minutes, (laughs) let alone 10,000 years. That's nuts.
1: (laughs) Okay, I regret telling you some things now. (laughs) We'll sidebar about that. (laughs) I'll be like pineapple on pizza. (laughs) You bastard! (laughs) My sterling reputation ruined!
0: (laughs) Everyone cancel them quickly. (laughs) (laughs) And that brings us to the end of episode two.
1: (sighs) That's it. We did it. it.
0: We did it. So, for next week's reading... Make sure that you've read to page 159 in the mass paperback edition, ending on the sentence, in case you have a different version, quote, Perhaps no young woman is reported missing among the Fremen. End quote. Ooh. That's
1: right. I can't wait. Ominous. Why is she missing? Why maybe hasn't she's she been reported?
0: Yeah, maybe she is, maybe she isn't. Who knows?
1: Find out on next week's episode of CSI Arrakeen Well, friends, there is no real ending. It's just the place where you stop the recording. But this podcast is always one step beyond logic. So help spread the word of Maudeep and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network on loreparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, he who controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you on the golden path.
0: All right. I'm going to tie my shorts. Make sure these don't come down during the recording. Hello. You never know when we're talking about hate <laughs> and his unexplainable magnetism. God, how did my pants come off? This this goal is good, guys. This goal is good. <laughs> All right. Stilgar's like, why am I fully erect? the Tleilax who are like oh you know you know why bit of his flesh we used okay